This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Michael Imperioli is starring in the second season of the HBO series The White Lotus, which was created by Mike White. Imperioli spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. Here's Sam. Michael Imperioli is a very busy person. This year, so far, he's appearing on the HBO series The White Lotus. His first novel is being reprinted, and he's releasing new music with his band Zopa. Imperioli made his name as an actor in the influential TV series The Sopranos, playing Christopher Maltesanti, the violent gangster with impulse control issues who's got a father figure in Tony Soprano. Not a great role model. Imperioli's been thinking a lot about The Sopranos in the last few years. In 2021, he published a book called Woke Up This Morning, The Definitive Oral History of The Sopranos, co-written with Steve Sharippa, who plays gangster Bobby Bacala on the show. The book came out of the podcast they started during COVID called Talking Sopranos, where they went back and watched the whole series all over again. Michael Imperioli published his first novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, in 2017, and it's being re-released this December. It's a coming-of-age novel set in 1976 New York, and one of the characters is another perhaps flawed father figure, Lou Reed. But let's start with The White Lotus, the Emmy-winning HBO series created by Mike White. In the second season, Michael Imperioli plays Dominic DeGrasso, a successful Hollywood producer with a sex addiction who's destroyed his marriage by cheating on his wife a lot. He's reluctantly gone on vacation to Sicily with his father and son to find their family roots while staying at the luxurious White Lotus hotel chain. And he secretly contracted a local sex worker to stay the week with him, which is causing him a lot of shame and guilt as he hopes to change and save his marriage. His father, Bert, played by F. Murray Abraham, flirts with any woman he comes across, and his son Albie, played by Adam DeMarco, thinks they're both sexist dinosaurs. Let's hear a scene between Albie and Dominic, where Dominic tries to defend himself. Imperioli speaks first. Hey, Albie. Yeah. Hey, um, I feel like you have this wrong, distorted impression of me. I have always supported women. I've always promoted women. I'm a feminist. I mean, I didn't marry some subservient wife. Your mother's a brilliant, amazing woman. Did you talk to her? We didn't talk about you, Dad. No, I don't want to put you in the middle. Um, you don't have to say anything to her, but if you did say something, I'm hoping you'd tell her that I'm really, really, really missing her and Kara and, and that I feel, I feel really awful. She listens to you. Nothing is going to fix this. No? You have to change, Dad. You have to stop doing what you're doing and actually change. I know that, and I have changed, and I am changing. I can change. Oh, yeah? Yes. I can be the man she wants me to be again. That's our guest, Michael Imperioli, in the second season of The White Lotus. Michael Imperioli, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. So your character, Dom, is on this trip with his father and son, which he's, he's very reluctant about. And he's kind of stuck between them, both generationally, but also like in terms of his relationship to women. As I said, his father, Bird, is really lecherous. He cheated on his wife, but he says, you know, those were peccadilloes. I'd never loved them. Um, I loved my wife. 
but your your character also is cheating on his wife, but he feels a lot of shame. Uh, he has sex addiction and compulsion issues. His son doesn't really see a distinction between them. Can you talk about how you decided to play Dom? Dominic is wrestling with doing things he doesn't really want to do and feeling kind of propelled to do them once he gets kind of that bug in his head. And as soon as he's done with it, this, you know, wave of guilt and remorse and regret come over him all the time. And he realizes he doesn't want to be doing these things. Um, Probably at some point in his life earlier on, he did them without being conscious of these after effects, justifying them, um, you know, felt entitled to them, compartmentalizing them, but that kind of faded away. You know, and he, he's really seeing the effects of his action both on himself and on his psyche and on his family. This is an issue that I've thought about a lot, like how men's behavior changes over generations and uh, how much amount of change is available to you based on like the era you're living in and you're based on your generation. That seems to be playing out as well in your character. It does. It definitely does. Um, you know, Bert, who's... 80 years old in the show, right? Who were his role models? You're talking about going back to early part of the 20th century, probably, and maybe earlier. So he, his role models were rooted in, you know, traditions of patriarchy. And he didn't really see any, probably much diversion from that. And felt that what he was doing was okay. Whether or not Bert was a sex addict, I don't know. I, you know, addiction really is something that a person has to define for themselves, at least in my opinion. Um, but Dominic's, you know, that conversation you played with him and Albie, I mean, Dominic really believes that. And there's probably evidence that, that he has supported women and promoted women and feels like a feminist. There's probably evidence that he can point to to prove that point. Yet at the same time, um, there's this other side to him that's, you know participating in uh, exploitation, possibly, of women, um, cheating, being unfaithful, and all those other things. Did you do uh, much research into sex addiction and compulsion for the role? Yeah, I did. The tricky thing with sex addiction, it's very similar to food addiction, whereas other things that are very clear-cut, like if you're addicted to cocaine or heroin or even alcohol... You can't do those things, right? Those things are going to destroy you. You you can easily live your, you know, hopefully live your life without them, right? Food and sex are things, food obviously you need to eat, but you have, if you have a food addiction, you have to find healthy ways to eat, obviously, that are not going to put you in danger, your health in danger. And with sex, you want to integrate that into your life as a healthy element. And a sex addiction can come in many, many, many forms, But the common thread is you do stuff that you don't want to do and then feel regret over it. You feel powerless over a compulsion to do certain behavior that has an allure to you. Right. You've said that you've studied addiction your whole life. What did you mean by that? Um, I've played so many addicts, you know, and I've seen from very early on in my life how damaging addiction is. And I've lost a lot of people to it, people who have died from it. Um, And a lot of my heroes, you know, artistic heroes, because most of my heroes from when I was young were artists, 
uh, died of it as well. And, you know, I had a lot of curiosity about it, always. You know, I said, like, this, your role, you're kind of sandwiched between your father and your son. And, uh, and thinking about the ways in which you're different than your father, the ways in which your son is different than you. I think it's pretty common for people to imagine themselves as being like different from their parents, but they end up oftentimes being a lot like them. Have, have you had that experience yourself? Well, raising kids, yeah. I mean, which I'm kind of, my wife and I are empty nesters now, which is, which is really fabulous, by the way. No offense to <laughs> my kids. But um, uh, raising kids, I, can, I really learned a lot about my parents and particularly my father. And how difficult it is to do that. And I was like, oh, that's why, <laughs> that's why this went on. And that's why he did this. And most kids, as they grow up, and especially when they're adolescents and young adults, they, they resent their parents, they rebel against them. They harbor these things and whatever, harbor things against them. And as I started raising kids, I, I think I really forgave a lot of things that I might have been holding on to. You know, you have a lot of screen time in The White Lotus where you don't actually have lines, but you're really good at showing just how stricken with shame your character is. Can you talk about those sort of nonverbal moments on camera? Mm. Well, those are really fun to play as an actor. And um, working with Mike White, who allows you to have those moments, uh, is really, I'm very grateful for Uh because there are moments when you're dealing with just raw expression of emotion rather than verbally telling the story or verbally expressing how you're feeling. I mean, which can also be very moving and effective. But when there's no words, you really have to rely on connecting to the emotion as, for, as real as you can. And um, you don't have to be literal. You can use anything. I always say... Nothing is sacred to me. In my imagination, if I have to use something really horrific or really inappropriate or something, that and I would never share with anyone, tell them this is what I'm thinking about, but if it's going to create the right thing, the right emotion for that scene, I'll, I'll use it, and then I'll just put it away. You know, once, once I use it, it's done. I don't even think about it ever again. You're able to remove that from your mind? Yeah, and I'll never, you know, I don't, go back over it and it's not something that I carry after you know what I mean you know last year you published a book called woke up this morning the definitive oral history of the sopranos that you co-wrote with Steve Sharippa and he played Bobby Bacala in the sopranos you said in the book that uh, you based Christopher Moltisanti on someone you actually knew that you don't say who it is and the person doesn't know and You'll never say who that is. But I was just wondering, what was it about this person that influenced the character? Well, there were some, there were some very literal things that parallels, like being from kind of a, not New Jersey, but um, a similar kind of New York adjacent, you know, kind of place. Addictive things and brushes with the mob. He wasn't a mobster, but there were, he had some brushes with them. Uh, but particularly what it was, was this person who I knew when I was a lot younger. 
was very hyperbolic in his expression of emotions <laughs> to the point where sometimes I wasn't sure if he was acting or not. He was very big that way, you know what I mean? Like when he, especially when he felt he was being slighted or in, you know, expressing injustice, feeling that kind of thing, which Christopher always felt like he yeah. was unappreciated and <laughs> yeah. being slighted and being kind of looked over. And, but he would express it so in, in such a huge way totally uncensored um, that I, I would always be like, it, it, it almost looked like a performance and which is a little bit risky to do as an actor because you don't want it to seem like a performance. Right. right. You want Someone might say real, you're being over the top or something, right? Of course, which he was, yeah. but that, that was who he, that's who the character was. So when you got the role, you didn't tell the producers that you didn't know how to drive. Um, or did you actually tell them you did know how to drive? Oh, I don't even know if it came up. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Um, but you found yourself behind the wheel, right? Yeah. I mean, I was, when I got cast on the spot, I think I was 31. So like, people assume you know how to drive. Uh, and it wasn't like I didn't know how to drive. I just didn't have experience, you know? I mean, like, I think I did it once in a blue moon. Did you, know, you have a day, license? When I was or? a kid, but uh, No. No, but I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to drive down the street. I'm not going to, you know, it's not like I'm taking a four-hour trip to Washington, D.C. or something. It's movies. How hard could it be, you know? I'm not going to do stunts. They have stuntmen for that. But actually what I had to do that first day was kind of complicated, even if you had a license, which was back down the sidewalk with trees on both sides and extras running away and looking at a mark straight ahead doing dialogue. It's kind of complicated, and I eventually wound up hitting the tree and <laughs> crashing. But uh, and then I got my license after that. I took lessons. And James Gandolfini was in the car with you. Is that right? He was in the car, and it was a it, you know the car. It was I hit it pretty hard, and he just <laughs> I thought he was going to be offended and upset, but he laughed his ass off. Um, he thought it was hilarious. And how was the car after that? Oh, the rear end was pretty messed up. I don't know if it was totaled. It might have been, but they had another car, and they just brought it over. They had two of them, so we did it again after that. Well, you know, uh, it's we probably don't have to worry about spoilers for The Sopranos since it's been out for so long, but your character dies after getting in a car accident with Tony. Do you think that your death was written that way as a reference to this early car accident? Oh, you know, I never connected that before till just now. That's very there are a lot of inside I jokes on the show, right? Like that? There is. I don't think so. I don't think it was that. But that boy, is that interesting? I never thought of that. Well, you know, let's, let's listen to a scene between you and James Gandolfini, um, who, of course, plays Tony Soprano. Um, he's your boss, but you also have this father-son relationship with him, although a, a very messed up version of that. And this is from the show's pilot. You guys are at Tony's house for a barbecue. You've stormed off because, like you said, you're always feeling disrespected. And he comes over and asks you what's going on. Enough of this. What's wrong with you? You know, a simple way to go, Chris, on the Triborough Towers contract would have been nice. That's it. You're right. You're right. I have no defense. That's how I was parented, never supported, never complimented. 
You know, my cousin Gregory's girlfriend is what they call a development girl out in Hollywood, right? She said I could sell my life story, make millions. I didn't do that. I stuck it out with you. I tell you. What are you gonna do? Go Henry Hill on me now? How many mobsters are selling screenplays and screwing everything up? She said I could maybe even play myself. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Forget Hollywood screenplays. Forget those distractions. Huh? What do you think I have in that office? We got work to do. New avenues. Everything's gonna be all right from here on in. So that's my guest, Michael Imperioli, with James Gandolfini and the pilot from The Sopranos. Um, was that like your first big scene with him? Do you remember doing that? I do remember doing that because that was a, the barbecue. So a lot of the characters were together. Yeah, it was always really fun when, when the scenes had a lot of us because we just loved each other so much, you know, loved being together. And a lot of us knew each other from before The Sopranos even. Yeah, that's it's really interesting hearing that scene in hindsight because how he's saying everything's going to be yeah. good for your yeah. meal it was anything yeah. but that <laughs> nothing ends up good. <laughs> you, you know there's kind of a pattern in the tony christopher scenes where like christopher is grousing about something tony takes it for a little bit and then he like blows up he often like grabs you starts pushing you around they're really intense scenes what was it like to do those um they were great Working with James was, you know, he he was always so committed and gave 110% all the time. I think we had a lot of respect for each other and trusted each other to try things and to go as far as we could go. And, and um, we, when we were very good friends, you know, we became really good friends. Spent a lot of time together, not only on the show, but in private life hearing that makes me miss him a lot you know and uh part of that bond among the cast is the magic of the show too that's part of the magic and why it's resonating you know still you know when you were working on the show did do you ever hear from someone who said they were part of the mafia and either criticized or praised like how the show was portraying the mob you know i met a couple of people who said they did what i did but for real which means that they probably didn't because anybody who really was in that life is not going to say it. I was introduced to someone by Tony Sirico, who played Paulie Walnuts on the show, um, with the knowledge that he was a captain in, I think, the Genovese family, someone Tony knew for a long time. And he, uh, he said he could give me the real... <laughs> he could show me the real way... <laughs> Yeah. to uh, strangle somebody with a whatever, piano wire, Jeez. however they did it back then. Uh, he was kind of joking, but probably kind of not. Um, he di- he's gone, too. So um, the, the, the mob guy who told me that, I, I wouldn't say his name anyway, but he's, um, he had passed away. But, uh, um, you know, Jim got a call in the middle of the night, maybe after season three or something like that, an anonymous call, unknown number, and Jim answers like, hello. And the guy's like, hello. And Jim's like, yeah. The guy says, look, we like what, you, what you're doing. You're doing a good job, but you got to know one thing. A Don never wears shorts. <laughs> Click. And then the guy 
hung up, <laughs> and Jim never found out uh, who he was or how he got his number or anything like that. I mean, that's funny, but it's also kind of scary. Yeah. I, you know, f- from what we've heard, you know, through the grapevine, is that for the most part, they, they enjoyed the show. Um, you know, they probably can see the places where it's, you know, it's a, it's a piece of entertainment, so you're going to lean into things that are interesting and fun and exciting and stuff. But, um, and I think most of the real guys know that. All right, well, let's take another short break here. I'm speaking with Michael Imperioli, who stars on the second season of the HBO show The White Lotus. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air. Today we're talking with actor, writer, and musician Michael Imperioli. He stars in the HBO series The White Lotus as a sex-addicted Hollywood producer on vacation in Sicily with his father and son. He also published an oral history of The Sopranos last year, and his first novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, is being reprinted next month. And he's got a band called Zopa that's releasing new music. You started writing episodes of The Sopranos while you were on the show, and I wanted to first just start with the scene. Um, This is a very funny scene from an episode you wrote called From Where to Eternity, and uh, this is when you're recovering from being shot. You were actually considered dead for a moment, and you go to hell, or you think you go to hell. Something happens, and I guess hell takes place in an Irish pub where it's St. Patrick's Day every day, and you see your father there, and you, when you come back, you tell Tony and Polly Walnuts about this, which totally spooks Polly Walnuts because he's worried he's going to go to hell. Um, and so I wanted to play the scene where Polly, well, you're in the hospital, you're actually sleeping, but he wakes you up because he wants to uh, assuage his fears about hell. And Polly's played by Tony Sirico, so let's hear that. Did anybody there have horns or buds for horns? Those goat bumps? Polly, it was hell, okay? My father said he loses every hand of cards he plays. And every night at midnight, they whack him the same way he was whacked in life. And it's painful. Night after night. Does that sound like heaven to you? Was it hot? Yeah, I don't know. The heat would have been the first thing you noticed. Hell is hot. That's never been disputed by anybody. You didn't go to hell. You went to purgatory, my friend. I forgot all about purgatory. Purgatory. A little detour on our way to paradise. How long do you think we got to stay there? Now, that's different for everybody. You add up all your mortal sins and multiply that number by 50. Then you add up all your venial sins and multiply that by 25. You add them together, and that's your sentence. I figure I'm going to have to do about 6,000 years before I get accepted into heaven. And 6,000 years is nothing in eternity times. I could do that standing on my head. It's like a couple of days here. That's a really funny scene uh, that my guest Michael Imperioli wrote. I love how Polly is sort of like comparing doing time in purgatory is like doing time in prison. You know, you've said that you don't know how to act in a funny way, but you certainly know how to write a funny scene. Yeah, well, Paulie Walnuts was such a funny character, uh, as was Tony Sirico. Um, very superstitious, paranoid, 
hypochondriac, narcissistic. This is the person, not the act, not the role, right? This kind is, of both. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> kind of both. <laughs> kind of both. They were, yeah, Tony had a lot of those traits as well. God bless him. Uh, I miss him a lot. He died last he year, was, right? He died a few months ago, yeah, in, in July. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy. Um, uh, yeah, you know, that was... I was just thinking about, because all these guys are Catholic, right? I mean, they literally burn a picture of a saint when they're doing their... Right, when know, they're being made. Induction ceremony, yeah, being made. And and I was just thinking, well, what are these, you know, do they think at all about what they're doing? You know, how do they justify it, compartmentalize it? What's that all about? What's the relationship? Is there a relationship? And, you know... Th- when The Sopranos first came, it took a while for The Sopranos to get any traction in Italy. It was very popular in a lot of countries, uh, a lot of European countries, before it got popular in Italy. And, and it, it is popular now. And the reason was the idea of a mobster going to therapy to Italians just didn't make any sense at all. Because they're just like, he, well, he's a mafioso. Why is he, you know... Why in the world would he go to therapy? Uh, there's no... It's just a very different way of looking at it. But eventually, I think they started watching or, you know, and uh, a lot of people in Italy really like it. You know, in your book, you said that Tony Sirico used to identify very closely with the character Polly and that he was, like, protective of how Polly was written. How did that work out? <laughs> He was really protective. Um, there was a line written. It was an episode early on. Actress Karen Silas played a madam who was friends with Macasian, the crooked cop played by John Hurd. Uh, and John Hurd's character kills himself. Macasian kills himself. And then Tony goes to see his, fr- you know, this madam who was a friend of, you know, Macasian, and they're talking about Polly Walnuts, and she, and, uh, she said, you know, um, Macasian always liked you, Tony. He didn't like Polly. He thought Polly was a bully. Well, Tony read this in the script and was infuriated and went to the writers and said, this, this is wrong. Polly is not a bully. And I'm, I'm not saying this line because Polly, he's not a bully. And you got to change that line. And they never changed it anything on The Sopranos. You couldn't improv, you couldn't change a comma. And the writers, they, for some reason, they took this into consideration and, and went back to him and said, well, what if we change it to, uh, he thought Paulie was a psycho, and Tony went, I'm fine with that. <laughs> and he would do his own hair, right? He would swoop up his the gray part of his hair into those wings. Yes. Yeah. Well, he would, you know, when you do a TV show, you come to work in the morning, you go to the hair and makeup trailer, and the, the team does your hair and cuts it if it's needed and styles it and stuff. And he came to work. He didn't even go in the makeup trailer because his hair was already done. He did it at home. He had some kind of mysterious process that he woke up very early in the morning for and air-dried it uh, with tons of tons of hairspray. <laughs> and I guess styling product and had it dyed by this, you know, his barber, that those wings, the white wings in his hair were, that was, you know, specific, he would get that done before the season started, you know, and maintain it himself. It was that an was iconic look. Yeah. 
Polly has a different last name, but he's called Polly Walnuts. Do you know why that's his nickname? Um, there were a couple of theories. One was that he's a hard nut to crack, which I never put much into that theory. And then one was he was supposed to hijack a truck full of television sets, and it turned out to be a truck full of walnuts, <laughs> which was not as lucrative. And it turned yeah. him, you know, and earned him the nickname Paulie Walnuts Forever. <laughs> That's great. Well, why don't we take another short break here? If you're just joining us, our guest is Michael Imperioli, who stars in the second season of the HBO show The White Lotus. We'll be back after a break. This is Fresh Air. We're back with Michael Imperioli, who stars in the second season of The White Lotus on HBO. So, you know, you wrote your first novel. It came out in 2017. It's called The Perfume Burned His Eyes. It's a new edition of it coming out this month, and it's a coming-of-age story that takes place in 1976 Manhattan. It's a 16-year-old boy named Matt moves from Queens with his mom to an apartment building in Manhattan. And upstairs from him lives Lou Reed and his lover, Rachel Humphreys, a trans woman who was like Reed's muse through the the mid-70s. If you've heard Coney Island Baby, you know that he shouts out to her at the end of that. Um, So how did you come up with the idea of writing Lou Reed? It seems like he was a big influence on you. Yeah. I had attempts at writing fiction before, both short stories and and longer form, I guess, novels, many times, for many years, and never got anywhere with it. But I wanted to write a coming-of-age story because in 2013, my middle child was 16 and was going through, you know, usual difficult 16-year-old problems, and I wanted to find a way to relate to that. So I started writing this coming-of-age story about this kid who moves, his mother inherits some money, and they move from blue-collar working-class neighborhood in Queens to a rather posh East Midtown, you know, doorman building, you know. Uh, a distance that's, you know, I don't know, two miles maybe as the crow flies, but very, very different. Um, different lifestyles, you know, different types of... It's a totally different kind of world for this kid. Um, and about three months into writing it, Lou died. Louis died, which hit me on a bunch of levels as, as a fan, which I was for many years as, a, as an artist, because he was someone who really I looked up to and influenced me a lot. Uh, as a New Yorker, because he was such an iconic one, and, and, and as a friend, because we had gotten to know each other in the last like, dozen years of his life. And somehow I got this, this you know, part, I was out of kind of grieving his death, which was, was hard, to be honest. Um, I got this idea of putting him in the story, and particularly that time, the story was already set in the 70s, uh, 77, and, you know, at that time he was living with Rachel Humphreys in, in this building on the east side, and somehow those things came together and gave life to this story. Yeah, you have Lou Reed working on two songs in your novel. One is Street Hustle, which is like one of my favorite songs from anyone. It's a beautiful and dark Me song too. about love and and death and loss. And I think people think that that's inspired by his breakup with Rachel. Um, oh, but it then, definitely is. Yeah. yeah. But then the other song that you have him working on is The Blue Mask, which is a really different song. Like it's full of this violent imagery and, and like sadomasochism. I've never really gotten an understanding of what that song's about, but it's definitely about suffering. Like, why did you choose to write about that song? 
Well, I love that song. It's a song that I really love. One of my favorite guitar players of all time is on that song, Robert Quine, who played with Lou for a number of years. Um, and the night... Well, I had met Lou before he knew... We, we had encounters before he knew who I was. Like, But when we finally kind of got introduced uh, at a concert in around 2001, um, and he invited me backstage and... and, and we, we became friends. But that night he played The Blue Mask, which he didn't always play at that time, I think, in the repertoire, and it just blew my mind and made me love that song even more. And, you know, I just thought lyrically uh, it just worked for the where the kid was, you know, because he's experiencing a certain amount of darkness in his world and violence and... Um, trying to make sense of it and, you know, just trying to survive it. And uh, that song, I think, both terrifies him and inspires him in a way. In the, the last section of the book, it seems like it could be written from your character's point of view or from just from you. It's contemplating Lou Reed after he's died and you say something like, I mourn for the loss of you. I also mourn for the loss of my younger self. I mourn for the the way the city was where I lived. Is that is that you coming across on the page? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it, the book is not factual or autobiographical. Sure. You know, some people who knew Lou thought that I knew him then, and that was my story. You know, which I took as a compliment if they knew him and kind of felt that there was some, you know accuracy to the storytelling there which is cool but um well, you're not old yeah, enough to emotional. be 16 and 76 right no i was 11 and 77 no but emotionally i was very young when i kind of got to the city mm -hmm. and you know started experiencing a very different world you know and um some of that was very dark i'll be honest with you and some of it was fantastic and much of it was strange and new, you know, so uh, I understand that aspect of the story and what the kid's going through. So, you know, you have your own band called Zopa. It's a trio, bass, drums, and you're playing guitar and singing. Well, let's hear some of Zopa. This is a song you released this year called Red Sky. Um, and you repeat these lines in different parts of the song, like, you're not like anybody else, you're just like everybody else. Um, it felt to me like that song is dealing a little bit with the themes of your book, The Perfume Burned His Eyes. Do you feel that's true? That song's about my wife, you know, who I think is just extraordinary and one of the one of the most unique people I've ever met and probably the smartest person I know. And uh, that's a love song, really, written for her. Um, obviously that theme you're not like are you just like everybody else you're not like anybody else can be also about a broader thing about individuality and keeping your individuality and uniqueness in the face of a lot of obstacles and difficulties which is an important theme for me yeah, as an artist and the book too yeah it's in there well let's hear red sky Made your mind 
pull me closer to the seven knots unwind. Tell me that you will in the bottom when I'm frightened and when I'm blind. You'll call out my name and guide me to the next life where I'll find. That's Red Sky by the band Zopa. The lead singer and guitarist is my guest, Michael Imperioli. Michael, one of the things I really like about that song is the the ha-ha-ha-ho and the ooh-la-la. And when you're taking um, syllables of like you're not like and you're just stretching them out so they sound like just sounds, they're not words. Well, ha-ha-ha-ha-ho is actually from a Tibetan Buddhist prayer, believe it or not. Um, and it's it's kind of about dispelling obstacles. Um, um, that's where that comes from. But um, ooh la yeah, la is not part know, of uh, ooh la la. No, it's just you know sometimes you're just working on a song and these things just come, you know, uh, from who knows where. But that ooh la la came in and it just was like, oh yeah, that's good. I don't have, then I don't have to think of like real words. <laughs> um, I mean, I sing, you know, with all the limitations I'm well aware of that I have as a singer, you know, but I just try to um, express as much as, as I can, you know, emotionally through the lyrics. Um, finally, I just have to ask you about what sounds like a slightly odd Imperioli family tradition. Um, on Christmas Eve every year, you would watch Midnight Cowboy with your father and your brother. Um, <laughs> for, for anyone who doesn't know that movie, it's a very gritty and bleak depiction of New York uh, 60s hustlers. It's not a movie that screams Christmas Eve. No, and I, you know, I did a movie with John Voight once, who I, I mean, who I think is just one of the one of the best that's ever done that's ever done movies. He's just awesome, and I told him that, and he said. Wow, that's very sweet. It's a little <laughs> sick, but it's very sweet. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what family traditions are like sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that says a lot about our family, doesn't it? I mean, so it's like as bad as Christmas can be, you know, so you might have a really bad Christmas that year, but it's not going to be as bad as, you know, what these characters are going through in Midnight Cowboy. So in that way, it's very positive and uplifting. No. It sets the bar low for your expectations. It sets for the bar low yeah. for Christmas. There you go. Well, Michael Imperioli, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. Michael Imperioli spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Imperioli stars in the new season of the HBO series The White Lotus. After we take a short break, podcast critic Nick Hua will review podcasts that are intended to help you get to sleep. This is Fresh Air. There are podcasts that can put you to sleep because they're so boring. 
But now there's a genre of podcasts and audio streams intended to put you to sleep. Here's what podcast critic Nick Hua has to say about the phenomenon of white noise streams. According to some circles, this is the next hot thing in the audio business. What you're hearing is a white noise stream. You might find variations based on different pitches and frequencies, brown noise, pink noise, but they all have the same form. Long recordings of a static droning sound, not unlike the ambient noise you'd hear on a plane flight. White noise streams are a kind of sonic wallpaper, generally having the effect of drowning out the rest of the world. For many, they help keep some parts of the brain distracted so that other parts may better focus on things like writing or studying. As a phenomenon, white noise streams aren't particularly new, but they have recently been rising in prominence on digital platforms like Spotify and YouTube. Earlier this year, Bloomberg reported that some white noise creators were earning up to $18,000 a month on Spotify. The trend has everything to do with the shape of these platforms, which are built around incentives that encourage the mass production of content that's cheap to make and sticky to consume. There is some precedence to the contemporary popularity of these white noise streams. In a sense, they are of a piece with an increasingly vibrant ecosystem of similarly shaped audio content that are native to digital spaces. Consider, for example, stream of consciousness podcasts designed to help you fall asleep, like this one, the aptly titled Sleep With Me, hosted by Drew Ackerman. I guess technically I'm just wearing shorts and a t-shirt, but it is kind of my pajamas or my like uh, pre-bed clothing. But I was also, I guess, pre-bed clothing or clothing you sleep in your bed in or clothing you sleep. But I was thinking like pajamas is like one word, right? But then it got shortened to PJs, which, uh, you know, the S is lowercase for whatever that is, uh, multiple or what, I don't know. First of all, isn't it a pajama or is it top? Because what if you're in a one-piece pajama? Consider also YouTube live streams that string together lo-fi hip-hop tunes, a niche music genre that can arguably be traced back to the beats of Jay Dilla and the ambient music of Brian Eno. Here's an example of a track from a Danish instrumental producer who goes by J-Hove. On the surface, the growing ubiquity of white noise streams has a slightly dystopian feel. They seem to sprout like a fungus. And they quietly creep into spaces they aren't quite meant to be, arriving unexpectedly when you leave YouTube to autoplay indefinitely on its own, or appearing on Spotify charts displaying popular podcast episodes. That's how I first started noticing them, by the way, tucked between an episode of The Joe Rogan Experience and Last Podcast on the Left. What's particularly weird about them is how they are meant to sound intentionally generic. While some creators of these streams are affiliated with the traditional music industry, many operate anonymously, presenting themselves as digital avatars. They also feature clumsy, descriptive titles written specifically to game search engines, like Deep Layered Brown Noise 12 Hours or Relaxing Rainstorms White Noise for Sleep. If it feels somewhat dystopian, that's because it kind of is. To some extent, these audio streams are creations of profit-seeking actors squeezing as much value as they can from these digital platforms. And as their presence continues to grow, some music industry observers have started raising concerns about how they might crowd out the creations of conventional working musicians. 
At the same time, there is a pleasure to these audio experiences, and they're also meeting very real needs. Personally, I use white noise streams to sleep when I feel anxious in hotel rooms. It's also hard to shake the sense that the popularity of these audio formats, white noise, sleep podcasts, lo-fi hip-hop, and so on, reflects something larger. These streams can be roughly described as works of minimalism. And as a critic Kyle Shaker recently observed, minimalism is a natural reaction to a chaotic moment in history. We do live in chaotic times. So perhaps it's only natural, then, that people are turning to sounds that help drown out everything around them. It's just surreal, and maybe a little ironic, that the sound of a chaotic world is this. Nick Hua is podcast critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be Weird Al Yankovic. We'll talk about the new film Weird, a satirical biopic about his life, which he co-wrote. We'll also talk about his actual life and how he became an accordion player and became a star by writing and performing parodies of hit songs. Beat It became Eat It. He turned Like a Virgin into Like a Surgeon. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross. Have some more chicken.